it's Julian Assange and WikiLeaks that have returned honor to to journalism. Julian is a truth teller, and that's what has upset the those who continue what Goebbels called the big lie. Anton Karras of The Third Man, and uh, that, of course, was John Pilger, uh, the cold opening. Uh, hi, I'm Randy Credico. This is Live on the Fly, Julian Assange, Countdown to Freedom in collaboration with Covert Action Magazine. Uh, we have a very special show today. We were doing this once a week. That was the original plan is once a week. But um, it went so well. The response was so good the other day. And the Mr. Assange's situation is so dire. We're going to do this as often as we can. And we are in a great studio, by the way. We are in uh, nycpodcasting.com. If you are in New York and you're looking for a place to uh, do a podcast, I would uh, strongly recommend you come here because uh, the facility is just immaculate and uh, the fidelity is great, and the people are really uh, are great, uh, great warriors, and uh, we appreciate that. Um, I'm in the studio right now with uh, the uh, director, executive director of uh, Courage Foundation, uh, Nathan Fuller. Uh, Nathan, uh, welcome back. Thanks for having me. And, uh, you know, it was great having you the other day. We have... Uh, you know John Pilger. He's actually uh, one of the trustees uh, at uh, Courage. Yeah. Uh, Courage and Courage has been around now for six years now. Six years now, and you're at the forefront uh, in the defense, the struggle uh, for Julian Assange. And people can reach Courage Foundation by going to CourageFound.org. Uh, but then we have a site dedicated to Assange specifically at defend.wikileaks.org. Well, you're doing incredible work, and I'm glad to have you around today. Um, John Pilger, how important is he in the, how important is he in this struggle, this battle uh, for justice for Julian Assange, would you say? Yeah, he's been with Assange and from the start and explaining the importance from the start of Assange's journalism, and it's a really important reminder uh, of the impact that uh, WikiLeaks has had on journalism, and uh, it's just incredible to have a John Pilger, investigative journalist like that. Possibly mm. the greatest journalist of my lifetime is John Pilger. He's won uh, countless awards. He's got 71 um, films that are on his website, johnpilger.com. Uh, he's won at an early age, the youngest uh, recipient of the Journalist of the Year Award in Britain, and he's actually won it twice. Uh, I mean, it's endless. He's won an Academy Award. He's won Emmys. He's won um, uh, the British version of the Academy Awards. Uh, people should go to his site, uh, johnpilger.com, and get an education. Uh, really, it's it's. I, I I last night, in fact, you know, 
his first film was 1970, and it uh, was called The uh, Quiet Mutiny, and it was in Vietnam. He was a war correspondent back then, uh, 1970. He was working for uh, Reuters, and he was working for the Daily Mirror, and he got numbers of awards for, for his bravery as a war correspondent and bringing out the truth. We're going to play. I want to go back since it was Nixon's birthday yesterday. It was Richard Nixon's birthday yesterday. And that's the reason why we didn't tape it yesterday. We said, let's wait until Nixon's birthday is over. <clears throat> yes. Um, I would say that uh, John Pilger uh, is in my, in my lifetime. Uh, I have not seen a better journalist than John Pilger. Uh, and uh, if you take a look at his body of work uh, at johnpilger.com, his articles, uh, the books, his speeches, uh, and his films, I mean, war correspondent, uh, journalist, uh, filmmaker, author, this guy, what a life, what a role model. And if you want to get a good education and you're in college, take, take, um, take a semester off and look at all of John Pilger's movies, all right, you know. There, um, Leonard Bernstein was talking about uh, uh, Beethoven. I was watching a nine-week special on Beethoven symphonies, one through nine, all nine. And he said that all nine were perfect. All nine of Beethoven symphonies were perfect. And that's the same with John Pilger's films. They're perfect. And so go, afford yourself the opportunity, take some time off and watch these films. We're going to play a clip uh, this goes back to 1974 when the U.S. was still involved in Vietnam, even though they said the war was over. This is from um, Vietnam, Still America's War, 1974. Here is uh, an excerpt from that uh, great film by John Pilger. The war in Vietnam ended officially in January last year. American troops were seen to go home. Mr. Nixon said it was peace with honor at last. And those of us who had reported the war through its longest years also went home. For as a news story, the whole boring mess of Vietnam was finished. So much for the fantasy. Since the Paris Agreement and the so-called ceasefire, more than 70,000 soldiers and civilians have been killed in Vietnam. But this film is not about the day-to-day -day slaughter of soldiers. It's about the continuing and growing and forgotten suffering of the Vietnamese people in what is still, almost incredibly, America's war. On the streets, the Americans appear to have gone. They haven't. The Pentagon has thousands of men in Vietnam. They include senior officers, pilots and technicians, many of them disguised as civilians and embassy officials. American military headquarters is now called the Defense Attaché's office and functions almost exactly as it did before the Paris Peace Agreement. But the majority of Americans in Vietnam, without whom the war could not go on, are servicemen who have transferred directly to the payroll of some 60 American companies on contract to Washington. There it is, Still America's War, Vietnam, John Pilger, 1974. Um, sounds pretty familiar, you know, what's going on in Iraq and Afghanistan right now, what's going on then. Sadly and so. it, it's just amazing that, that, that John has lived this long uh, because the stuff he was doing back then for years and decades, he continues. Um, you know, it's like, wow, this guy has survived all of that. Um, now, so so that was one of his first films, you know, his third or fourth film. Uh, the latest film 
is uh, on the, it's called the Dirty War on the NHS. It's not, it's out there right now, but it's not on his website. But the trailer is, we're going to play the trailer. I just want to show you the, 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 uh, an arc, the breadth, going from Vietnam in 1970 to where he is today. Still making films five decades later. And this is called the Dirty War on the NHS. And here's the trailer. In 2019, more of the NHS was sold to private firms than ever before. I'm proud of what the National Health Service, and there is nowhere in any nation in the world to compare. Healthcare for all on the basis of need, not ability to pay, that's an enormous and important achievement. For many Britons, the war had been fought for a new Jerusalem of decent homes and jobs and healthy lives. This leaflet tells you what the new National Health Service is and how you can use what it offers. The NHS has been repurposed from a public service to something for profit extraction. Tens of billions are being siphoned off to run a market system. All the changes we have seen have just been about liberating up these potential assets for the corporate raiders to take them over. Globally, if you look at it, and the NHS stands out as a 120-odd billion pound opportunity. They decided that as lead nurses, we would go around all of the wards to see if we could actually get them out. In the United States, the cartel of health insurance companies decide who shall live or die. All you're getting is the management consultancy kind of approach. The beauty of the NHS came from its simplicity. There was no need for this army of intermediaries we now have. We will never abolish the NHS. The NHS simply becomes eventually a basic service. Okay, that is um, the trailer. What a great trailer that is. All right, really. His trailers are worth the price of admission. Gotta They're all that. good. And we're going to play more excerpts later on in the show uh, with John. Uh, excerpts from other films, A War You Don't See, um, I think The War on Democracy, and a few others, including an interview he did with uh, Julian Assange, uh, in 2016, 2017, that uh, won a huge prize in Mexico. So uh, don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Um, Nathan and I will be right back with uh, the legendary, distinguished, redoubtable John Pilger. We'll be right back after Paul Robeson gives his version of Jerusalem. <laughs> Satanic mirror. 
was Paul Robeson, William Blake's Jerusalem. And uh, we are now going to London and uh, being joined by, as I have uh, said uh, in the opening, uh, with the great, the redoubtable uh, greatest journalist that I know, John Pilger, uh, coming from uh, London. Welcome uh, back to the show, uh, John Pilger. Thank you, Randy. It's very good to be back. It's been a long time, John. A long time. I mean, we've done it has. we've done some Too long. Sh- we've done some shows together with my good friend Dennis Bernstein. But the original show that uh, we did, uh, it's been two and a half years, uh, I believe. And uh, in the opening, oh. it's been two and a half years since I left WBAI. Um, but um, in the opening, we played a couple of clips, just showing the breadth uh, of your uh, filmmaking. Uh, uh, Work and uh, we uh, played a clip from the Vietnam, the second Vietnam film that you made, and also um, from your latest film, which is the Dirty War on the NHS and uh, Jerusalem. You uh, it is, it mm. is the the New Jerusalem you called it. So that I know Paul Robeson was not the music that mm. you played, but you, there is a, a a reference to Jerusalem. Can you just like? Uh, uh, lay that out for a minute before we get into uh, our stuff on Julian Assange. Yeah, well, Jeru- Jeru- the National Health Service was the first, uh, the world's first public health system. Uh, it was uh, it was brought in in Britain in 1948 after the the Labour government. Uh, tipped Winston Churchill out of power in 1945. Britain was then a country that had uh, won the war, won its war, but at terrible cost. And uh, uh, the ordinary people were demanding, as you put it, a new Jerusalem, a new Jerusalem of... of, uh, of housing, of decent housing, decent jobs, uh, health care, all the things that they had a right to. And the Labour government uh, brought in this extraordinary um, uh, landmark system, the National Health Service. Um, and the, the film is about the attempts since then to... Uh, to undermine the health service by right-wing um, elements in in Britain uh, from the early days of Margaret Thatcher right through to the present. Uh, and at the end of the film, I use the wonderful hymn. I, it, it was written originally as a hymn by William Blake, Jerusalem. Uh, which talks about building a new Jerusalem in England. Uh, And if ever a new Jerusalem was built, the health service represented that. So it was really a tribute uh, to it. That's the reason I use that music. Well, that's the reason why we uh, put that in uh, after playing that trailer, it looks like a great film, John. Mm. It's not yet up on your website, but uh, there are 70 other films on your website going all the way back to um, uh, The Quiet Mutiny, 1970, which is almost 50 years ago. 
uh, and uh, mm-hmm. it's an amazing. It's, it, I call it the uh, Library of Alexandria. Uh, your website there is it's so rich. Everyone should go to his website, John Pilger's website at johnpilger.com and look at the articles, the books. I got two of the books with me right now: Freedom Next Time and The New Rulers of the World. I always uh, read parts of those books before I uh, engage in an interview, John, with you. Um, and, you know, I, I, I got to tell you, you know, going back, like I said, two and a half years ago, three years ago, three years ago is when we kicked off that series here, Assange's Countdown to Freedom. And uh, you and Julian were on the same show together, April 11, 2017. And back then, I mean, I was very optimistic that uh, sooner or later, within the next year or two, that uh, Mr. Assange would be back on the streets. And, uh, you know, things have gotten worse. But you continue, John. You continue to go out there. You do all of these talk shows. You show up at demonstrations. You, you do vigils. I mean, you've done, you write about it. Uh, what, what really propels you, John, uh, in this cause? Hmm. Well, Julian, Julian Assange and, and what he did and the, uh, the new journalism that he represents and with, through WikiLeaks created, that is uh, accurate journalism, which would tell us the truth about great power, tell us the truth about governments, tell us the truth about when governments lie to us, when they go to war in our name and deceive us. Uh, WikiLeaks record uh, is unique, and I say unique because there is no journalism that is 100% accurate, and it is. Uh, Everything you read from WikiLeaks is authentic. Um, whereas day after day we have to put up with with uh, uh, vested interest propaganda, and that's all that's all it is. I say that as a as a journalist of many years myself, but it is it, it's shaming, and indeed WikiLeaks um, incurred hostility from the so-called mainstream media because it shamed journalists. Uh, It did the job that they should have been doing a long time ago. Now, I I have very strong feelings about journalism. I think it's, I've always regarded the job I've done as a privilege and that we have certain obligations and that is to be agents of of the truth and agents of people, not agents of power. And journalism, as it's constituted through the misnamed mainstream, uh, is invariably an agent of power. Uh, WikiLeaks smashed through that. Uh, And I found it the most exciting development in journalism in my career. and of course, but Julian, in doing that, he was making uh, very powerful enemies, uh, and that's the reason he is now sitting in a maximum security prison here in Britain, um, 
fighting uh, against uh, uh, an application by the United States to extradite him where the, the concocted charges add up to 175 years in prison. That is, that's the price of his journalism. Um, so not only does Julian represent um, the kind of journalism that um, we all should support, journalists and the public, but his own case is one of, of extreme injustice. It is the most grotesque miscarriage of justice I think I've ever known, and I've reported on quite a few. Uh, so that's the reason, Randy. Yes. Well, I, I must say that you are, uh, uh, for Julian, what uh, Zola was for Alfred Dreyfus. You have been in uh, the trenches uh, nonstop. It's it's really incredible, uh, John, to watch uh, you continue uh, on a day-to-day -day basis. Uh, I, you know, you uh, recently visited uh, Julian Assange. Uh, in Belmore's prison. Before I, I talk about that, John, I, I, I want to play a clip uh, because you know about the prison conditions in uh, in Great Britain, in uh, the UK. Mm -hmm. I don't know if it's the same in Scotland, but certainly uh, they're rather bad. And I want to play. Do we have the clip of John's film, which I ran across on your website? It's 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 called uh, "Guilty Until Proven Innocent." So we're going to play like one minute of that, John, and get back to you. All right. This is from "Guilty Until Proven Innocent." Okay. This is a film about injustice. Injustice on a scale that most of us would never imagine possible in this country. It's a film about the imprisonment of people without trial, of innocent people, first offenders, petty offenders and children. And I should emphasize that those you see and hear from in this film are not isolated cases, but represent many thousands who, almost unnoticed in the last few years, have been caught in a system which has become almost as chaotic and repressive as in countries without even the pretense of our Bill of Rights. Wow. So uh, that was pretty heavy. I, you know, there's some great scenes in that doc. It really it, the 1970s. That yes, that night. So you would think that the uh, conditions uh, of the prisons uh, would have improved over the last 35 years, but I, I, I got a feeling uh, you don't see it that way. After well, that film, that film was about remand prisoners, prisoners who are as the title of the film suggests, were innocent until proven guilty. Uh, and Julian, of course, is innocent and is not guilty of anything, right. but he's certainly innocent until proven of anything. Um, and uh, for prisoners to be remand prisoners, innocent prisoners, to be incarcerated with... Uh, uh, with such restrictions and I remember making that film Roman prisoners then were and that's in Britain were um, uh, were spending up to 20, 22 hours a day in their in their cells so their punishment was going on even even though they were innocent now, perhaps there have been improvements, but I can tell you I 
my visits to Belmarsh Maximum Security Prison just out lo- outside London is always a harrowing and rather surreal experience as you go through the the kind of robotic checks you're fingerprinted it seems every five minutes or or rather your fingerprinting of course is old-fashioned there's your your prints are identified uh you're photographed over and over again uh you're searched uh a dog uh will uh will inspect you uh and you're just a visitor <laughs> you're not a prisoner although you start to feel like one um so prisons perhaps the very nature of prisons is as punitive institutions will never change if they ever become something else where an intelligent uh view of of dealing with humanity that is certainly yes guilty of crimes but also humanity that can be rehabilitated or humanity that is simply innocent then uh, um, we haven't really got there yet and for for someone like Julian Assange who is has committed no crime his crime is journalism the same as me he's a journalist uh, and his crime his true crime is very good journalism, very revealing journalism, journalism that has provided a, a public service to millions of people all over the world who have been denied the truth uh, in, in uh, the so-called mainstream media. Right. You know, I, I look at this when you got the Sophie Award, uh, and that is for... Um, exposing injustice and promoting human rights. Isn't that uh, what Julian Assange has done for the last 17 years? Yes. Yes, indeed. Yes. He, he uh, WikiLeaks, it's a, I think WikiLeaks really got underway, I suppose. Oh. 2007. 2007, 2008, something like right. that. Perhaps a little before that. But of course, its uh, its great triumphs were uh, ten years ago when it published the uh, uh, the horrific war logs of Afghanistan and Iraq, and especially the video collateral murder, which showed the crew of an American Apache helicopter gunning down civilians in bank in um, in Baghdad, including including journalists and and laughing about it. Um, uh, a pretty routine day in that in that terrible um, in that terrible catastrophe that was imposed on Iraq. The, that's basically why he is being um, subjected to uh, all of these hurdles. And, and it's the U.S. And of course, you know, the U.K. is basically 
has become a, a vassal state uh, to the U.S. Uh, in this process, uh, I, particularly on the level of the Crown Prosecutor Services of, of the U.K., the Queen's, you know, QPS uh, Prosecutor Services. The um, the way they have acted from the very outset, uh, the way they work, uh, how they were complicit in keeping him inside that embassy so uh, the uh, Swedish prosecutor couldn't come in there and interview him in uh, the embassy and clear him of these, not even charges, just allegations. It goes way back to then, uh, way back when he first went in and over the next four or five years, the the CPS uh, did everything they could to keep him there and to uh, vilify him and demonize him and smear him, and uh, of late, I look, I look back, John. I just want to make this comparison. Here you have a war criminal like Pinochet, who was uh, about to be, he was wanted in Spain uh, for crimes against humanity. The guy killed thousands of people, uh, and uh, partic- including Spanish uh, Spanish uh, citizens in Chile. And he was there, and he wasn't subjected to this kind of pre-trial detention. That's right. Uh, it's 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 very similar. He's not only not subjected; he was he was given uh, every comfort by the Thatcher government. He happened to be stopping over in Britain. Uh, I think to uh, buy arms, actually, for Chile, uh, when he was, uh, the police arrested him on an international warrant. And, of course, uh, the um, the uh, uh, the Labour government, um, which uh, uh, then had come to power, uh, let him go back to uh, let him go, let him go back to Chile because <laughs> he was he was meant to be unwell and there we saw Pinochet being wheeled in a wheelchair to his aircraft and in London and when he arrived in Santiago walking <laughs> very jauntily from the aircraft to be embraced by his uh, fellow uh, generals. It was absolutely disgraceful, disgraceful moment. There'd be many disgraceful moments. These are, you know, these are the actions of imperial countries. They behave like that. They can call themselves liberal democracies. Uh, although that's becoming increasingly difficult to uh, to justify, but the, these uh, Britain was the original imperial state, of course, and after the Second World War, it reluctantly, <clears throat> if you like, handed over to the United States. It didn't. It didn't have any choice because it was it was uh, its economy was erect in the United States which had never known any uh, anything of the Second World War on its uh, own soil, uh, was extremely powerful. But Britain decided to be um, 
the uh, uh, the number two, um, and that's been increasingly difficult for the British British imperial establishment. Some of whom still believe that they have an entitlement to uh, uh, to rule parts of the world, but unfortunately, no power to go with it. So they have to really put up with America doing it. It's become very, very difficult lately with uh, President Trump as their boss. Uh, it must be a nightmare. <laughs> I don't think I can quite sympathize with them, but I can see their dilemma. I do too. But they are uh, mollifying the uh, Trump administration and the uh, the persecution of Julian Assange. Um, and I, you know, I don't know why uh, the British government says, "Hey, look, we're not going to extradite this guy. Let's just not do it." You know, the the U.S. is treating us like this. Let's like, uh, but there's something at stake, other than um, other than just sending him back and mollifying the U.S. government. What is it at stake for the U.K. power well, structure? I, 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 they believe the same thing, Randy. The same ethos. It is an imperial view of the world. Um, it is a, um, you know, where power in in Western states states has has increasingly uh, reverted to security and intelligence agencies. Um, the United States, that was always the case, but uh, the axis that really makes up the power structure is is military and intelligence. And in this country, the, the Britain is a kind of American aircraft carrier. It has has American bases all over it. Something. And I'm not exact, sure of the exact figure, and I don't think anyone knows the exact figure, but it's about 150 bases, including some of the most important in the world. And in GCHQ, it has probably the most effective uh, spying uh, and intelligence gathering institution in the world uh, to which the U.S. looks to. So... It's integrated. There's a there's a there's a transatlantic view of the world with some differences. Right. With some differences, that's all. They've... Uh, they're they're minor. They're minor differences, actually. They have spent a lot of money. Uh, the UK, uh, thirty-five, forty million uh, pounds over the last uh, eight years, monitoring Julian Assange. Uh, and you had the. Uh, the undercover global uh, spying on Julian Assange, and now they have him stuck in this uh, this medieval. I mean, Rudolf Hess had a better uh, living space in Spandau than, than Julian has in Balmorsh, and you've seen uh, his um, his health uh, deteriorate over the last couple of years, mm-hmm. and it must be heartbreaking for you since he is such a close friend. Well, I think you're right. I think that's quite a good comparison because Rudolf has had actually, in Spandau prison in Berlin, had actually quite comfortable uh, 
accommodation. Uh, of course, he ended up the only prison in the only prisoner in that in in Spandau, but it was quite comfortable. Uh, uh, Julian is uh, spends over twenty hours a day in a small cell. Um, he uh, which he paces. Backwards and forwards, backwards and forwards, in order to to get some exercise and to keep to keep his brain working. He's when he's he goes to a meeting with perhaps his lawyers or or he has to walk through parts of the prison. Then the other prisoners are put back in their cells so that he doesn't fraternize with them. So he's not allowed that contact. Uh, in the block that he's in, which is in the so, so-called healthcare, it's not even the prison hospital, they, they call it healthcare for some reason, at least where they, they observe people. Um, the person in the cell next to him is a murderer, and a few cells along, there's somebody who has serious mental health issues, who is screaming much of the night. That's the kind of conditions somebody who's innocent, uh, who has committed no crime, charged with no crime, uh, apart from these, I see, these concocted political charges in the United States. It's just... Uh, that's, they're the kind of conditions he has to endure. I think it's worth actually mentioning the kind of uh, uh, setup that, that Julian faces in the U.S. The 17 so-called charges uh, are under the 1970... 1917 Espionage Act. Uh, the Espionage Act during the First World War uh, was used to uh, come down against political opponents of the U.S. being in the First World War, conscientious objectors as well. It's a it's a political it's a piece of political legislation. No one doubts that. That's what it is. Uh, in the treaty between the United States and Britain, the extradition treaty, there is a section that prohibits any extradition if the offence is deemed to be political. Well, the offences are deemed to be political, or the charges, so-called, are political. That's what make this, makes this a, a terrible farce as well, Randy, that, um, he, you know, he... He, uh, uh, all they can use uh, is, uh, is, is a series of, of political uh, charges that were used during a war at the beginning of the 20th century uh, that were openly political. 
There's nothing else. That's it. It was totally a political. It's so shaming. It's so shaming on a misnamed criminal justice system. Yeah, it is shameful, and I cannot uh, disagree with you. Uh, We'll be right back with you, John. Uh, We're going to take a quick break. Uh, Here's a little Sam Cooke. I was born by the river In a little tent Oh, and just like the river I've been running Ever since It's been a long A long time coming But I know A change gonna come It's been too hard living, but I'm afraid to die. I don't know what's up there beyond the sky. It's been a long, a long time coming, but I know a change gonna come. All right, that was Sam Cook, and we are back with John Pilger. Um, John, I, I want to um, go to one of your interviews with Julian uh, from that uh, documentary that you did. Not a documentary, but it was a, a uh, interview you did that won the award in Mexico. One of the finest interviews uh, of Julian Assange that I've ever seen. I just want to play this. Uh, for the uh, audience out there who have not heard it. This is on your website, johnpilger.com. Do we have that set? Short Pompeo? No, no. The um, the interview with John, with, with Julian Assange. Okay. All right. All right, wait one second here. All right, we are back with John Pilger. Deal with- All right, wait a second. Go ahead, just play it. You know, we often deal with tax havens and people hiding assets and transferring money through offshore tax havens. So I see some really quite remarkable similarities. Guantanamo is used for laundering people Hmm. to an offshore haven, which doesn't follow the rule of law that we would normally expect. Tax haven is used for hiding people's assets, laundering people's assets through a jurisdiction which doesn't follow the rule of law that we would expect in our home countries. Similarly, Iraq and Afghanistan and Colombia are used to wash money out of the US US tax base and back. Arms companies. Arms companies, yeah. Uh, And and the the generals and so on, which are, if you like, non-profit versions. Um, So that you can't just... Well, you can't always pull out two billion bucks uh, from the U.S. tax base and just say, "Hey, let's give it to give it to an arms company straight away with no expectation of doing any work." But if you say this two billion dollars has got to go into Colombia, but the Colombian government has to buy U.S. arms, and those arms has have to be of a particular type particular specification that only one of these arms companies has, mm. um, then that's just a way of laundering this back into the United States. 
Wow, that's an excerpt from John Pilger. Your interview with uh, Julian Assange, I think it was on RT that's now on your website, uh, johnpilger.com. John, was there anything that Julian said there that was untrue? No, no, it was a very... Uh, I remember at the time thinking just what a what a vivid description of... Uh, of great power using money and people. Uh, they're interchangeable as just as means of exchange, means of, of commodities, warehousing people, storing money. Uh, I thought it was unusually unusually expressive, unusually vivid of how the, the, the whole criminal system between power and financial power works, financial transaction, financial trans, transactions that involve criminal activity, such as drug money, um, and arms. Um, it. He's very. Julian is very. He's he's capable of capturing something and understanding it and expressing it in a very journalistic way that many people understand it's it's quite a gift it, it really is remarkable uh his uh you know he's got great what we say uh, in show business great chops he really has uh, this ability uh to uh put things out there in a vivid way and a metaphorical way uh that uh, is really quite compelling and this i mean not only is he a great journalist not only does he do great work but you know this guy has a great voice uh, when you saw him, uh, John, uh, and plus he has a great sense of humor, did, is a lot of that like right now because of this long ordeal, which has really hit the deep end of the last year, uh, is that really affecting his ability to uh, showcase his sense of humor and his sense of analysis? Uh, it, it must affect him, but it certainly, it does affect him, of course. Um, in the interview you've just played, he was free. That is, he was, <clears throat> uh, he was, that interview was recorded at my house in, in London, but he was still having to report to the police every day. But at least he was free to move around. I think the effect of, um, eight years, coming up to eight years of confinement, first in the embassy and now coming up to a year in Belmarsh Maximum Security Prison, um, has had an impact. He'd have to be superhuman for it not to have had. But that, <clears throat> that said, uh, I'm always struck by his ability to be able to laugh and 
to express a very wicked black humor. And as I think I've probably got one too, it's something that we often been able to exchange. But and we have my last visit to him in prison. Um, it uh, he was he was describing, as I think I described earlier in the program, that he has next door to him a murderer. And just down a few cells away, there's somebody who clearly very mentally ill who screams through the night. Well, um, these are, he described these in a very black, humorous way as the kind of living conditions that are imposed. He also described his exercise that he is allowed to have. He's allowed to walk up and down on a uh, an asphalt, a tarmac uh, outside in a very confined space with high walls around him. And on those walls are printed all this happy clappy stuff so, and such as enjoy the blades of grass beneath your feet. Uh, there is no grass. Um, and indeed, when you visit Julian, there's more of this happy, clappy stuff about friends are forever and uh, all of this kind of childish, uh, new age, new agey sort of stuff that really uh, is quite, I think, quite grotesque in a place like that. But he's able to see the humor, the black humor in it. Uh, I'm not sure I'd be able to. I'm not sure. You know, I've been in, I've been arrested about a dozen times, and just the, you know, the eight, the ten, up to twelve hours of uh, being in a jail cell uh, is uh, pretty uh, shocking uh, to the system. You never get used to it. You're glad that you have the experience for the one day. You certainly don't want to do. Uh, more than that. My father did 10 years in prison before I was born, and I can tell you it affected him the rest of his life, and it affected his kids uh, because these are not uh, – they. I, as you said earlier, what, what we've had prisons around for five, ten thousand 10,000 years. I don't understand – their purpose, to be honest with you. I mean, if you're going to take someone like Hannibal Lecter, put them in prison who are going to kill people, or you put on, you put in there people that are, uh, you know, war criminals, that's one thing. But to put in a journalist like Julian Assange, he's a journalist. And I look at this, this concerted effort to defame the individual, to vilify the man. I want to go back to a clip here. This, this is three years ago today uh, when... Um, Mike Pompeo, do we have the Pompeo clip? Can we play this? Do you remember this, John? This is just before I had you on the very first Assange show. Let's uh, play this clip, uh, Mike Pompeo, Secretary of State. Back then, CIA. It's time to call out WikiLeaks for what it really is, a non-state hostile intelligence service often abetted by state actors like Russia. We know this because Assange and his ilk make common cause with dictators today. Yes, they try unsuccessfully to cloak themselves and their actions in the language of liberty and privacy. 
But in reality, they champion nothing but their own celebrity. Their currency is clickbait. Their moral compass, non-existent. Their mission, personal self-aggrandizement through destruction of Western values. What do you have to say about that three years later, uh, John Pilger? Yeah, well, I mean, Pompeo is the kind of caricature. He's like all these figures that have appeared there. Uh, are quite human. I mean, he's a he's sort of bloated Christian fanatic. Yes, that's what he is. Yes, he is. Yes, uh, he's so extreme. Uh, he's a dangerous person, and uh, what he just said in that clip is so absurd. It's complete. Uh, but I think what they all say about everything is all is absurd. What Trump says is absurd. Uh, this is, in many ways, the age of absurdity. Uh, absurdity is fine if uh, it's benign and we can perhaps laugh at it, but it's not funny now. No, it's certainly These are not. dangerous people. He really is. He really is a, a dangerous. They're they're all dangerous. It's very scary uh, times. You know, it was Pompeo that really pushed for uh, the killing of uh, the general, uh, the Iranian general in um, in Iraq, and uh, he's pushing for regime change in Venezuela. He's happy about what happened in Bolivia. This is a very sick individual. And uh, you know when he's lying, it's when he moves his lips because he just lies around the clock. Uh, You know, that's the negative side to all of this. I want to focus on on what is positive that's happening right now with Julian. And and, and just just let me interrupt there. I thought you were going to play. I remember which we're talking about humor, which made me laugh at the time in one of your earlier programs. You played that wonderful thing from The Wizard of Oz. I could while away the hours, conferring with the flowers, consulting with the rain. And my head, I'd be scratching while my thoughts were busy hatching if I only had a brain. It worked. It worked extremely well because it, um, it matched... Um, it revealed uh, his absurdity and uh, um, and why we should uh, regard this person as as a mutation almost, really. I think I know what you're referring to because he is from Kansas and he's the scarecrow from Kansas who doesn't have a brain. We'll, uh, right. We're, we're going to slip that in at the end of the show after this interview is over. We'll Good. find that, okay? Because you're right. I remember playing mm-hmm. that. Um, but... <laughs> Um, you got a good sense of humor, John. That's why I love you so much. Uh, you do serious work. It's good to have a sense of humor. And you know, I just trying to uh, have some optimism. Uh, we're, we're six weeks away or even less uh, before uh, the, this extradition farce, and it's just a farce. I mean, is it just a show trial, John? I mean, you're just going through the motions of, uh, of, a, of a fair hearing, and just so his counselor mm. would say uh, that he got his due, and then he's going to be shipped over here, and everyone should be happy. Uh, is that what's going to happen, or do you think that the pressure, is there enough pressure? You have Lulu Lula out there. You have Obrador in Mexico out there. You got more people speaking out. There seems to be a sense, 
a thousand journalists just uh, signed that petition. Um, what is your um, feelings about uh, optimistic uh, feelings about all of this? Mm. I don't think it's entirely a show trial. No, um, it's certainly up to now. Um, it's had all the features of the show trial, some of the preliminary hearings, but. Um, Julian has a very good legal team and he has uh, probably the best extradition uh, barrister in Britain, a man called Fitzgerald, um, who uh, has very considerable respect in the courts here. Um, and it, it, I mean, it, I think the argument will be put that, and put very successfully, that uh, uh, there is no case to extradite Julian. Uh, it's against the law. It's against a treaty, an extradition treaty between Britain and the United States, which, as I said earlier, uh, explicitly bars anyone being extradited to either country if the offence for which they are to be charged is in any way political. Well, that is true in this case. So he should have he should have walked free a long time ago. And the reason he hasn't walked free is that at this level of courts in Britain. The judges, or rather magistrates, but the judges, are political. Uh, they, they only whisper that in this country, uh, but they are political. It's quite, quite clear, witnessing the last hearing here, as I did, the judge uh, was uh, biased and clearly political. Now, it, if... If the argument put against extradition, put by Julian's legal team, is so overpowering uh, and the judge has to concede, if not wholly, but at least in part, then it's not a show trial. Uh, my own sense is that justice in the courts here uh, really only has a chance uh, when it goes to appeal. It will go to appeal anyway, uh, and that means then it goes into the High Court. Uh, now, the High Court is not entirely predictable by any means. Uh, yes, it has made what I would call political judgments, but it's also made judgments that have gone against the political grain. And whether a judge or two judges who are sitting on the bench uh, during an appeal decide to judge this case on its merits, and if they do, they'll throw it out. They can't do anything else. There's no case. Or if they decide to go the other way, I don't know. So there is that 
there is that unpredictable element about it, Brandy. It's not cut and dried by any means. But there are elements, there are hidden hands here that certainly have an agenda and they have a lot of power. And that is uh, MI6, MI5, whatever there. You got the CIA, NSA. Uh, They don't want this man talking. They really do not want him out there. He's, Mm -hmm. it's amazing. All of these huge institution, trillion dollar institutions are afraid of Julian Assange. It's just amazing. But I I, I get your point there, John, that this is really going to be fought in the court court of public opinion. And I think that Tony Papa last week made it quite clear. And then I look back at that case and go all the way back to 1772, Somerset versus Stewart, Lord Mansfield not returning a slave uh, to um, uh, to a slave owner uh, in London. Uh, there was this mythical thing about him saying the air was too pure, but he re- that that was not true. But that's not what he said. But he did reject uh, the claimant's uh, arguments and would not send a slave back, Stuart, back to the United States. So if you had that back then, 1772, uh, there's a glimmer of hope for Julian Assange. Um, I don't know about your country, though, yeah, John. More, more, more recently than, than then. I mean, it's only a few years ago that uh, a, uh, a whistleblower called Laurie Love, who was convicted of, uh, or would have been convicted, I beg your pardon, would have been convicted had he been extradited to the United States um, of hacking into... Uh, into the Pentagon's computers, um, his extradition was refused here. Uh, and Laurie, Laurie Love is, uh, is certainly uh, an inspiration for some optimism. It's a different case. It's less political. All those uh, shadows that you describe uh, are not there in his case. But the courts did reject the U.S. application for extradition. It has happened, and it has happened on a couple of occasions. Not many, but that is the one that's closest to Julian's. I agree. I think it uh, is a good precedent that uh, Lori Love was not sent back, and the judge, uh, his finding yeah. was uh, quite moving, and uh, and hopefully mm-hmm. it augurs well for Julian if it gets that far. It shouldn't even get that far. This case should be dismissed uh, right away. Yeah. He's been he's been well, there. You look at there's the no should in this, Randy. We're up against very people. You've mentioned Mr. Pompeo and the other fanatics in Washington. They want to get their hands on Julian and and put him away. Look what they're doing to Chelsea Manning. Uh, uh, a, a heroic, heroic whistleblower who's who's almost disappeared, disgracefully put back into prison. And is fine because he refuses to lie about Julian, refuses to say that there was a conspiracy between him and Julian Assange. Right. Uh, people, you know, is there 
Is there no justice in the United States? Uh, That's a question people looking in uh, must ask, and I think ask with a certain amount of of, uh, of justification. Well, as Bill Kunzer would say, there's no justice in and out of court, uh, particularly in this country. I... Um, I, I, I look. I, I, I'm looking also at um, Scott Morrison, the Prime Minister of uh, your home country, Australia, uh, and I, I don't see much movement uh, in his office in support of Julian Assange. Is that uh, disappointing? Well, no, there's none. There's none. In fact, there is collusion between the Australian government and the U.S. authorities. The there's. The leaking of files has, has showed there's been active collusion. Um, so uh, that's uh, uh, that 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 collusion has been has been going on now right for over a decade. Uh, Australia, in as far as its foreign relations with other countries as far as its strategic relations with the world is the 51st state of the United States. That's not an exaggeration. That's what it is. Yeah, I, I, I agree. Uh, but I, I must say that of all of the um, movements out there, that there is a vibrant movement in, in uh, Sydney and uh, across Australia in support of Julian Assange. Uh, it, I wish it were all over the world. Uh, in this country, of course, people ha have this uh, weird feeling towards Assange. You have the Hillary people who think that he's responsible for Trump, and then you have the Trump people who think that he is responsible for releasing all of these uh, documents and war logs. So uh, he's it's almost a pincer movement against Julian Assange uh, publicly. Uh, look, let's just get to this Hillary Clinton thing, and then I'm going to move on to the end of this uh, uh, well it's, uh, Randy it's it's sort of like the pig which is worse pig ignorance or malevolence uh, you know that's uh, uh, if, a, if a number of people who can read and write really believe all that yeah then it's very depressing indeed unfortunately it's probably true yes it's it, it is but you know the but you know he going back to 2016 uh, he releases the Podesta emails, DNC. He, I mean, that was his responsibility. He could have either not done it or do it. He had the stuff, and it was, as a journalist, it was his responsibility to put out material that he had. Do you agree with that? Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, yeah. That's all. Um, yeah. Julian... <laughs> Julian was not forgiven. No. Because I think he described famously the difference between Trump and Clinton as the difference between gonorrhea and syphilis. Um, and a very, very vivid description indeed, and very closely accurate too, I would have thought. Uh, I mean, if the, you know, the world couldn't care less if uh, Hillary Clinton got in or not, because um she was competed with the worst of them to be the war world's greatest warmonger so um who cares uh, uh one can only speculate 
what would have happened to Iran uh, with uh, Hillary Clinton as president because she once, uh, and I think I quote her directly, threatened to eliminate Iran. Uh, so, um, um, As she did Libya. Uh, and, you know, uh, what the grievance shared by the Hillary Clinton is of no concern to the rest of the world. It's sort of more confirmation that there is a kind of malevolent circus in the United States, and it's called an election campaign. Right. Well, you know what they say about the elections here every four years? There's an election coming up, and the unfortunate thing is somebody is going to win. That's the real problem. <laughs> Someone will win. That's my yeah. uh, late friend, uh, Barry yeah. Crimmins. He used to say that every four years. Uh, yeah. I'm going to just... Uh, I can't... Uh, go ahead. If, if I could speak briefly, this is an absurd thing to say, but if I could speak briefly for the rest of humanity who are not Americans, who are not in the United States, we are bombarded with every piece of minutiae. The journalists are, are uh, in thrall to every, every uh, 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 piece of tedious non-information that comes out of the various primaries and where I think, well, we're coming up to Iowa or something. Yeah. Uh, uh, no doubt there is significance in it, and I don't want to diminish the importance that perhaps Senator Sanders may have another run at it. I hope he doesn't do what he did last time when he embraced Hillary Clinton. But uh, we and the rest of the world have to put up with all this as our news. It's unfortunate, um, and it it it's it seems it's it always as you've just said, someone wins, and it's basically they produce the same kind of person who to prove their prove their credentials needs to fire a missile island country and threaten sanctions at most of the world and. And that kind of thing. Well, I'll tell you how bad it is, John. Uh, the news here is so bad. The mainstream media, if you want to call it mainstream, I think it's whatever that is called. It's entertainment, uh, I call it. But it's so bad, the news here, uh, that I uh, watch BBC. That's how bad it is here that I'm watching yeah, BBC. Well, okay? BBC <laughs> is a breath of fresh air, and you know how bad BBC well, is. Uh, well, relatively speaking, I can understand. I can understand that, but beware. BBC is the most refined propaganda system in the world. I agree. Uh, uh, and the, whereas uh, um, the, uh, you know, you have something like, uh, uh, the what's her name, Rachel Maddow is a kind of uh, foghorn of propaganda, uh, whereas the, the BBC, the way, the way they broadcast propaganda is a, sort of by omission. It's a censorship by omission. So it's rather more sophisticated. Much, but, more, um, much more sophisticated. Than it, really. In principle, it's pretty much the same. Yeah, yeah I, I guess so. But the, the entertainment is, uh, it's, it's act, you, it, you know, I can watch it. I can watch it. I know there's a lot of BS in there. 
but it's it's at least watchable because the other ones, I can't tell the difference from one network to the next and from one show to the next. It's the same thing. It's almost like it's on rote. And uh, John, look, uh, we've kept you on a very long time. Um, okay. And I want to. I just want to. Before we go, I want to just play one clip, and this is from um, your film, uh, the um, the uh, coming war on China, because it is. Uh, you, we have that clip. This this is the trailer from the coming war on mm-hmm. China. I'm going to play this because this is an important film. I'm just going to get your comment afterwards and then we're going to let you go. But we're going to play this trailer. This is the coming war on okay. China from 2017. Here. Mm-hmm. The world is being primed to regard China as a new enemy. The great power game is called perpetual war. Our first president, George Washington, said, if you want peace, prepare for war. Where are we going to stop this process before it starts a war? The aim of this film is to break a silence, and nuclear war is no longer unthinkable. The equivalent of one Hiroshima bomb was exploded in these islands every day for 12 years. They're not trying to run the world. They want to keep America from dominating. We need an enemy for all this money, and China's the perfect enemy. United States scientists conducted human radiation experiments to study how human beings absorb radiation. There's really nothing more terrifying than this. The Chinese, 2,000 years ago, built the Great Wall to keep the barbarians out and not to invade them. As we look at China on the map, we can see that China is the basic cause of all of our troubles in Asia. China, they want to dominate a huge chunk of the planet. It is time to show the whole world that America is back. I pity a country that would come up against us. We get better and better and better. Well, that came out two years ago, John, and I think the uh, yeah. threat is still there, if not, in fact, even worse. It's greater now. Yes. That uh, was that film, I have to say, was quite prescient because uh, the uh, uh, what was then called the pivot to Asia, which was the buildup of U.S. forces in the Pacific, has now developed into a a full-scale trade war initiated by Trump against the Chinese. Um, and China, of course, is building its its defenses, including its nuclear defenses, uh, and preparing for the real possibility of an attack. All of it wholly unnecessary. China is not interested in... in uh, in war of this kind, well, I would think that almost all nations in the world are not interested in war except one. The U.S. Uh, and I live there. And, I live in that country that likes war, right? Uh-huh. Well, I, that's, uh, that sounds an extraordinary statement, but unfortunately it's true. Every, every year, um, Gallup takes a poll around the world and asks people... Quite a big cross-section of people right across the world 
Which country do they regard as the greatest threat to their well-being, to their lives? Uh, is it North Korea? No. Is it Iran? No. Uh, through the list they go, overwhelmingly the majority is the United States. Um, that's what the world thinks, and it's it's pretty obvious. The events of the last week or so have been more rather tragic confirmation of that. It's very, very, very scary time. That um, times that we live in. That uh, that film, uh, the coming war on China, uh, is. Uh, you can see at your website. You've been very generous uh, with that website, uh, showing all of your films. Also at the British Library where uh, your stuff is archived, uh, the British Library, if you're in London. Uh, and I, and, and Bull, Bullfrog Films, still the distributor of your films? Bullfrog Films in, uh, in Pennsylvania, in Pennsylvania right. uh, still uh, distribute uh, my films of uh, DVDs, but you can, you can look at them. You can see The Coming War on China at... Uh, at JohnPilger.com. In several languages, by the way, there are three different postings of the coming war in China. I think it, it really is edifying, and it's just a tribute, John, uh, or it verifies the uh, the greatness of uh, John Pilger, the the 60-plus years that you've uh, been a journalist. Um, it's, uh, you know, you are such a uh, role model, and what would you say to other journalists? Let, let me just close with this before we go to Vera Lynn. We're going to close with Vera Lynn and um, we'll meet again. But uh, a message to journalists out there. Uh, what should they do? A young journalist, uh, student of journalism. Well, be, be journalists. Uh, be journalists and that is uh, to, be, to be as best you can, as imperfectly as you can be truth tellers and do not become uh, functionaries of of uh, corporations of vested interests uh, do not be seduced by that if you start off by being idealistic about journalism then then follow your star stay with it um, you probably won't be very rich, but I think you'll be satisfied. Well, John, for 60 years you followed that credo, and, uh, you know, the work is there. You, you, you know, you, you have a legacy that will be around for centuries, and I hope people pay attention huh. to people. Well, I'm serious. You know, that stuff should be preserved. Okay, as long as the world is around, we've got to save the – we've got to make sure the world's around for centuries, though, Randy. Uh well, that's true. Uh, that's true. It may not be around for another five or six years if that fire is not put out in <laughs> Australia. Put that fire out, or the world's going to come to an end. Yeah, and Mr. Mr. Trump and Mr. Mr. Madman Pompeo don't decide to find another demon to blow up. Um, but I appreciate what you're saying, Randy. That's that's very generous. Well, just explain one last thing, John, because we're going to take you out with Vera Lynn, uh, and it's We'll Meet Again. Now, that is the music from your film, Coming War on China, but also from a very apocalyptic film uh, called uh, well, Dr. Strangelove. It's, uh, yes, it's a tribute 
to Stanley Kubrick. Uh, and at the end of Strange Love, Kubrick played Verilin's, uh, uh I suppose it was in Britain, it was a, it was a very nostalgic wartime hymn almost that, uh, that the troops sang because they didn't know they would see their loved ones again. And uh, I've always been an admirer of, of Kubrick and what the coming war on China was saying was pretty much what Dr. Strangelove was saying. So in using uh, We'll Meet Again, it was really paying tribute to the great film director, Stanley yes, Kubrick. Yes, you are the Stanley, Stanley Kubrick of journalism. You're the, you're the Robert <laughs> Burns and the William Shakespeare of journalism. I love you, John Pilger. My goodness. And, and I, I really mean that, you know, and uh, the Beethoven, the finest journalist in, uh, in my hey, lifetime. Bro. I'm 65, but in my lifetime, you're the finest journalist by far. Thank you very much, John Pilger. We're going to go out with Vera Lynn, and uh, we'll be back uh, right. In just a few minutes, John Pilger, the great John Pilger from London. Keep up the great work, John. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, Randy. All the very best to you. Bye-bye. Thank you. We'll meet again. Don't know where. Don't know when. But I know. Sunny day Keep smiling through Just like you always do Till the blue skies drive the dark clouds far away So will you please say hello the folks that I know tell them I won't belong. They'll be happy to know that as you saw me go, I was singing this song. We meet again, don't know where, don't know where. Some sunny day We'll meet again Don't know when, don't
meet again. Um, and, uh, you know, Johnny Cash has a great version of We'll Meet Again. But she goes way back. She's still alive. She's like 98, 99. Um, anyway, I want to thank you all out there. I want to thank John Pilger, of course. Um, and I want to thank you, Nathan. Nathan, just uh, Nathan uh, is uh, from the Courage Foundation. Uh, Nathan, just give us a quick um update on what's happening uh, street action-wise. I know there's a demonstration uh, every Thursday uh, uh, with uh, the free Assange, free Chelsea Manning uh, boob at New York over there at uh, Grand Central. And there are demonstrations around the world. There are vigils uh, all over the world, uh, particularly in London and Australia. Uh, do you have anything else to announce? Yep, just about a month and a half out until Assange's a uh, full extradition hearing begins on February 24th. We are ramping up demonstrations of support here in the United States. And uh, you should follow Courage on social media to get more information uh, about details. We're at Courage Found, and you can find us uh, at defend.wikileaks.org. Uh, but I can tell you that, uh, first of all, Assange is going to be back in court on Monday, January 13th, a little just procedural hearing. Uh, and then back in court on January 23rd when we confirm the hearing dates. Um, but then here in the U.S., we have uh, events coming up in Washington, D.C., Los Angeles, and New York, uh, all to discuss uh, Julian Assange's indictment and the threat it poses to press freedom here in America and uh, America's ability to uh, dictate what, what gets published beyond its borders um, and to demonstrate support here in the United States to show the U.K. that uh, you know, we don't want this guy sent over here. We don't want this uh, prosecution uh, and the attack on the First Amendment. Uh, and so it's really important that people come out and demonstrate their support for Assange and uh, opposition to this indictment and, and prosecution uh, before his hearing, which again begins February 24th. Thank you very much, Nathan Fuller uh, from Courage Foundation. Thank you for all the great work that you've done. And um, I want to thank everybody here at nycpodcasting.com uh, in the heart of the East Village. What a great place. Uh, look them up, nycpodcasting.com. And, of course, my good friends at Covert Action Magazine, thank you for uh, hosting uh, this very important and necessary uh, show, Assange Countdown to Freedom. Thank you for picking it up. And we'll be back uh, next week uh, with Estelle DeHorn and uh, many others uh, to continue this discussion and this program, Assange Countdown to Freedom. As I said, you can hear it right here on CovertActionMagazine.com. Thank you very much, all. And uh, here's a little Neil Young. <laughs>